0: We started Culturally Speaking to indulge our curiosity about the way others live and a desire to inspire conversations about how we have far more in common than we realise. Hey everyone, welcome back. So this is part two of our British immigration episode. Um, If you haven't checked out part one, go back and then listen to that. We've got some Interesting stories, everything from the British uh, citizenship test to all of the statistics that make up um, immigration in the UK currently. But I think I want to pick up uh, where we left off last week. So I explained at the end of the episode how my family came to live in the UK. And I guess, Janice, I'm really
1: interested to know. How you came to be here and and your family story as well. So, as I mentioned in last week's episode, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and I'll give a quick history lesson of what happened there. so um, and I don't want to get pulled into any political discussions. This is just the version that I learned at school. So essentially, uh, you know wartime, colonial time, et cetera. Hong Kong was leased to the UK government for 99 years and that period ended in 1997 so interestingly my parents told me that when they were growing up um, you know radio stations weren't on throughout the night before yeah they stopped at midnight I think and they would always play God Save the Queen Mm -hmm. Um, also on the TV channel you know again TV wasn't around the clock before uh, before they switched off um, transmission, they would have the picture of the Queen and the God Save the Queen would play. And they also had free milk, you know, un- until Thatcher took it away. So there's a lot of elements which are very British, actually, the way they grew up. But obviously it being a, it's called a special administrative region. Mm-hmm. So the full name is actually Hong Kong, S-A-R. Um, they had a very different experience to what I had. Because needless to say, there was oppression, there was racism, there was you know the white majority being on your land, um, and you know glass ceilings within corporate careers. They they had all of that, and actually the really ugly side of this um, had things like you know signs saying no dogs or Chinese allowed, you know outside parks, shops, and so so they experienced a very different side to it where where when I grew up I went to an English-speaking school and I would say I basically grew up in the heydays of that period where all of the animosity and ugliness had gone and everybody was actually happy and you know it was a very international community so I think that's why different generations will have very different memories and feelings towards this Now, when the handover was approaching, um, actually, a lot of people were very afraid, because without really a big understanding of what China was at the time, because China hadn't really opened up that much by then, there was that classic 80s fear of the communists. You know, so, and, and I think it's kind of understandable, because when the handover happened, there wasn't a very um you know like in our line of work there's a clearly documented handover with specific details of etc there was some formality around it i remember there was a big parade and the official Mm -hmm. ceremony and of course um the overarching agreement was that for 50 years everything would stay the same okay and because we had our own legal system we have our own currency which is different to the British one, actually. The Hong Kong dollar is different. Um, and I guess a lot of people were just very worried that when the new boss comes in, like a merger <laughs> situation, what's going to mm-hmm. happen to us? Are they going to take everything or change everything? So back then, for people who are financially able to do so, there were a lot of families, there was a mass exodus. Mm. And this is to other Commonwealth countries, mainly like Canada is a mm-hmm. hotspot a lot of people tell me vancouver is just basically hong kong
0: so Um, sorry i'm gonna
1: sidebar really quickly if anybody's ever watched crazy rich sorry read
0: crazy rich asians that book there's this line where he basically is like i know that i can get like to vancouver in like this many hours and i know i'll be eating chinese food like downtown that i could basically be getting
1: (laughs) yeah clearly it's true basically there's i think It was this uh, Russell Peters, this Canadian Indian comedian, this Pacific Mall in Vancouver, apparently is the place to be if you're from Hong Kong. Um, And so Canada was a popular choice. Uh, Some people would go for Australia. Uh, UK is a popular one. But actually, my family thought about going to Canada when I was a baby. And... This is no, I've got no beef with Canada, to be honest, because I was five months old. I had no idea what was happening. But apparently when we arrived, they confiscated all my formula, which enraged my parents because I was a baby who needed food. Um, and I think generally they just didn't, you know, they weren't vibing with Canada. So we didn't go with Canada. And then we also tried to, we tried out America Okay. Um but I think that was a harder situation because we needed to get a landing card and then a green card and they had to secure jobs. We actually had a house out there for a few years. And I really enjoyed spending summers there, but again, it wasn't up to me. I was 5 years old, I think. Um and so the so we didn't end up moving anywhere It's the end of that story. <laughs> but another very common thing is that people would leave for school yes um this is usually either for year seven or like myself would be in sixth form um and I think the reason for that is a general feeling that the British education system was better right and a lot of people actually go study abroad and they find job prospects are better when they return home um, and I would tend to agree in terms of the British education system being better from the perspective of a student, because I'm not gonna sugarcoat this. School in Hong Kong was hard. Yeah, it was ultra competitive at all levels. Yeah, um, to the point where when I came to do six form, um, and for people not in the same education system, this is the two years before you go to university or college um I came to I picked maths politics and economics and biology for my a-levels and typically I think people do three right that's normal like that's the minimum well I think you and I are probably in a different scenario
0: in that most
1: we mostly did four or or five or so I did six yeah just to just to and and I didn't think it was weird no I just thought max out my chances of getting A's why not um and the reason I ended up doing six is because when I what well, I still remember I went to my first maths lesson and I'd already learned all of it like the first year syllabus I'd already done it and then my maths teacher was like he pulled me aside and he said we strongly advise you to take further maths as well because you got full marks in your entrance exam for maths. And then I was thinking about it really hard. I thought, but I don't want to study maths. Like nothing that I want to do in life needed further maths. But mean, then- <laughs> <laughs> nobody needs to do integrations, okay? Um, but then I ended up doing it anyway. And then I took Chinese just because why not? um although that was in mandarin not in cantonese so yeah it was just a massive contrast and we can we can come to the more like daily cultural bits later uh, because i'm interested as well to ask you how foreign you feel or like what are the weird things that are you know strange to your culture later but essentially i came to school did university did a master's and I've been working here since um and growing up in Hong Kong as well like my family has always been very multicultural literally we have by marriage people from all over the world and some some of my family have moved to Australia so yeah I would say I've got family almost on every continent maybe not the North Pole you know not not those ones
0: not yet. Um, no, I agree. I Same. You know. I think yeah, there's family on every continent that is habitable.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and that has good food. That's essential. <laughs> so we've we've talked about your story, my story, and interestingly, I remember last year, I think I WhatsApped you about this. I was reading this Guardian article about Gemma Chan, you know, mm-hmm. from Crazy Rich Asians and many other films, who's super gorgeous and very talented she talked about i think was it her father
0: i believe it was
1: yeah was that the i think that was the naval service wasn't it yeah and i think that's a huge chunk of immigrants who came from either military service overseas or i think you mentioned at the end of last week's episode wind Rush. yeah so I'm going to continue to call you a historian. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about those parts of history?
0: So I'm going to preface it by saying clearly I wasn't there at the time, or maybe it's not clear, but I wasn't there at the time. But (laughs) I have been um, around a lot of people that are descendants, Windrush Mm -hmm. descendants, and it has picked up um, significant interest recently um, with Mm -hmm.
1: the The scandal.
0: yes and again we're not going to get political but but the implications of that so um I think I said to you last year I went oh sorry not last year actually more than last about mm. probably two and a half years ago now I went to see a great play um called Small Island at the National mm-hmm. Theatre and it's come back as a run actually and I highly highly recommend if you are able to please do go and see it it's um very very moving and this mm. I, I went with and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying it two very good friends of mine who um are nigerian born and raised in in, in london but nigerian um by background and uh, so we were sitting together so you know me myself these two friends and there was a lady sitting in front of us um a white british lady and, and she was so visibly moved by this mm. play you know she turned around and said to her, she goes you know i just feel so bad about what we did but she said it very specifically to us. And it got us thinking, because I mean, that's not an interaction that I don't think our parents certainly would never have had that reaction from this lady was, you know, certainly in her 50s, possibly older. Um, but she felt compelled to say it to us. And I again, I don't know whether that was the backdrop against BLM mm. and, and the winter scandal, but um yeah, like it was very interesting the reaction, but but coming back to sort of the history, we touched on it that britain had you know famously the empire in which the sun never set Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and in a post-war world where the where britain was devastated you know economically it was crippled it needed rebuilding from all of the sustained bombing um in in the 40s there was just a huge need for labor um for particularly in, in certain industries um you know bus driving healthcare construction um the trades um where there was a, a huge shortage of skills um in in domestic world so they opened up opportunities to former colonies um and a lot of the wind what they call sort of the windies um are mm-hmm. obviously um the west indies and the Caribbean, um, for people to move over However, you mentioned about your family and and some of the signs they saw. So here, famously, a lot of the signage would say um, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. That's awful, isn't it? Who thought of them? And, you know, the experience of the people that came here, I mean, it's very hard for you and I to imagine because Mm. whilst we and we'll talk about it, you know, Well, actually, I'll ask you, what racial discrimination, if any, have you ever experienced here? Or anywhere abroad, if you've experienced it abroad?
1: Do you know what? I feel like I will caveat this segment, just because I think I don't really take these things to heart much. So, some people might be a little bit more sensitive isn't the right word, but I think i'm just quite thick-skinned with these things but i remember you know even when i was um at boarding school in town it's it's a regular thing that people would be like oh konnichiwa at me which for people who understand japanese uh, that's japanese not chinese um and when i was at uni uh, i'm not gonna say where um but it was a pretty white place <laughs> essentially and and already, being university town, there's animosity between townstalk and university people. And basically, one day, broad daylight, um, I, you know, came out of my house, went down the road, walked past a pub, and there, this is broad daylight, mind you. Uh, there were two uh, British guys, uh, I guess, maybe older, maybe middle-aged, who were standing outside the pub, and they just you know, kind of, I stepped left, they would step left, I stepped right, they would step right, just to not, not let me get through. And then they basically started pre- speaking pretend Chinese at me. Um, Me being me, I think you could have guessed my reaction, I told them to, you know, go away in a less polite way. And I went on went on my way. And then halfway down the high street, I thought about it. And I thought, I'm going to call the police not so much for myself but i can imagine so many other you know foreign students mm-hmm. who may not be as thick-skinned as me or whose command of english might not be good enough for them to you know pluck up the courage to call the police i thought i'm gonna do it for them mm-hmm. so i called the police they were lovely they came to my place sat down with me had a cup of tea together which is the most british thing ever but people who have lived in houses here would know that if there's um, a situation down the road there firefighters just make them a cup of tea like it's I don't know it was not normal for us anyway so we had a cup of tea we talked about it I went down to the station to make an official statement and of course they found nothing because the CCTV wasn't facing there so it didn't end up with any charges but I thought, why not do it? You know, for for the sake of everybody else who might face this. And to be honest, over the years, I think it's actually a bad thing. But I feel like I've become quite acclimatized to mm-hmm. um, these kinds of slurs because to me they're not particularly hurtful. They just look like fools for doing it. Um, but I think with the recent increase in Chinese people. Generally yeah. in London, I feel like the good side of it is that we've become, you know, regular faces now in the community, and I do find that I've not really got a lot of racial discrimination since. Although obviously during COVID there was very irrational and founded um, hatred towards anyone that looks vaguely Chinese, um, but you know the whole country was in a massive state of fear. Mm. So I would discount all of that with just being irrational. Um, yeah. And how about you? Because you're kind of native, actually. Native, but not,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> because we always talk about the voice doesn't match the, the face. Um, mm. Yes. So I think my experiences have been around. Do you know people you said people say, like people would confuse me for another oh, kind of think, st- <clears throat> and uh, there are quite derogatory words and so i think that's been my experience of
1: just being called oh okay i know what you mean now <laughs>
0: um and that again i think i've i'm quite desensitized to that because it's somebody's mm. ignorance to not understand care or want to differentiate
1: and i and i think just to add to that i think even though hong kong it is or was and is a very global community i think different cultures just have a different bar as to what constitutes being rude yeah so historically there's always slang terms um and i'm gonna say this because i'm one of them so i think i'm allowed to say it although i hate the word chinks as a term yeah it's absolutely terrible but but if you think back to First World Wars, it, nobody would find it a problem. So I think there is, I'm not condoning any racist behavior, but I think for older generations, there is some adjustment that maybe would never be made because in yes. their minds, it was okay for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, sometimes though i do get frustrated with the need to be overly politically correct so (laughs) i feel like we're always straddling between is -hmm. this too rude or are we being a bit too polite about everything yeah um because i had someone at a diversity and inclusion session that i attended just ask me so what do i call you and then i'm like my name you know it's... well names
0: are very interesting things as you know it's incredibly difficult for people mm. in this country to say Neha oh
1: love... my god guys you have no idea in the years I've known Neha how many variations I've heard <laughs> there is and... Neha there is Nea, there is Neha and it's actually very simple
0: but it's not because
1: word.
0: it's not because it clearly just doesn't roll off the tongue because those two syllables are not ever put together in the English language
1: but people say my name wrong exactly explain so, explain, explain that well
0: so where I take I, I always say this and then you know mm.
1: uh, this podcast goes
0: out kind of well <laughs> to, to the wider public and I'm, I'm you know sometimes that includes our colleagues but I'll always say if, you can if I can tr- understand that you're trying to call my name I will respond but if it's so far out the realms of possibility
1: <laughs> I just will not <laughs> answer because... what's the worst go on what's the worst you've had so uh, I used to uh this is
0: long time ago I used to be an intern um and I used to take uh or had to take calls and um for per- well, prospective clients and um I constantly would get called Netta. <laughs> so there's no, like, nothing related to even like, the right letters. And this is like after they've sent my email and, like, you know, we've exchanged a few correspondence. So um, yeah, I'm going to call you that. There's people, so like, consistently people do misspell it, even though, like, I'll send them an email first and it's in mm. my signature and the email address. How can it be, be know, misspelled? My name. Um, they'll always spell it back to me wrong which I find hilarious yeah there's lots and lots of variations and I I've as you say I've become very thick-skinned to it over time
1: (laughs) the worst one I've got is when people see my name and they say it's Joe 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 how is that a short form unless there's something I don't know
0: I mean, I always call you J-Lo, but that is very, like, tongue-in-cheek and an homage to J-Lo. Yeah, I don't mind
1: that, but I've had Janice. <laughs> I love Janice. <laughs> I mean, look, Janice, I think it's it's not the most modern name, but it's also in the English language, right? <laughs> it's not even a foreign language.
0: <laughs> Janice sounds so, like, bougie. Janice?
1: <laughs> and, I've it, like, had, <laughs> and I've had... French, And I've had janice definitely <laughs> i've had jancy do you remember yeah. when i told you <laughs> so jancy is an indian name
0: um which i again i find that but i don't I'm know how indian you, i know but i don't know how you get from janice to jancy
1: and jan oh jan is the worst no one has ever allowed me to call me that it's just the hey, absolute jan. worst because i'm not i'm like american mom in the 70s like oh so yeah i I get i mean coming back to our conversation of racial so we were we were talking about wind rush so maybe just give us a one-liner of what the scandal was about
0: so the british government tries to deport people that had been living here for over Mm. 50 60 years um just because they claim they didn't have the right documentation to be um residing in in the UK mm-hmm. which was outrage if you can imagine
1: <laughs> so talking about names and all of that and both of us having had our names mispronounced do you ever feel foreign
0: do I feel othered <laughs> to use mm-hmm. a at times yes um and I'll say you know I went to schools where I really was um a minority. Mm-hmm. And so people look to you and expect you to have, you know, the encyclopedia on what it means to be brown. And it's like oh, or, I'm- or
1: if they know one other person from that same country, they assume you know them.
0: Exactly. That's the best. And it's like India's a land of a billion people.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Did you know? Um so yes. I think that said, I do identify as being British.
1: Interesting. I think I'm, I'm very, I've got split personality when it comes to my identity because I, I am very proudly Hong Kong, you know, yeah. like I love the fact that I grew up there and, and there's many things about Hong Kong that I love, but in terms of like the legality of it, it does say British on my passport. Although I am also a citizen in Hong Kong, and yeah. I think I actually quite like having the mix. I think it's it's quite nice to be able to pick the best from both sides. Um, but of course I feel okay, take that back. I, I don't I shouldn't say of course I feel foreign, but I think when you live in a country that is made like majority white, of course, you know, you look different. Yeah. I think compared to some of my peers, if it's on the phone, people sometimes wouldn't guess that I was Chinese. And I think I have that advantage of having integrated both of my cultures quite well. Um, and there's nothing wrong, by the way, with having an accent. I think it's quite charming, actually, to to have your own accent. Um, but also because... I grew up in quite a British, you know, a very Hong Kong version of British culture. Things aren't that alien to me. Yeah. Apart from, I will mention this again, Mr. Blobby. I did not grow up with Mr. Blobby, and it's just gross. Um, <laughs> why it's does just it you out so I don't well. know. He looks horrible, and I don't understand why that could be a children's entertainment thing. It it no, it's horrible, but. You know, sometimes I talk to my colleagues about foods we ate as children. Of course, those things would bring out the fact that I, in fact, did not grow up here. But I never tried to hide that. Um, But, yeah, I think sometimes I feel othered when I'm in Hong Kong. So I was about to ask this because Mm. so you, you know, go
0: back to Hong Kong and it is the place of your birth. When people say to me, like, oh, do you know what you say to pe- oh, go back to where you came from? It's like, well, yeah I I feel completely othered in India. Mm. So that like we have a status for people that are like me, which is so and it's not a particularly like I wouldn't say people use it fondly, put it that way, like it's got mm-hmm. its own connotation. So the status is being an NRI. So it's a non-resident Indian. And okay. I'm like, I never feel more othered than when I'm in India. <laughs> as a as a, a British-born mm. Indian, because there I don't assimilate very well.
1: Yeah, because of course Hong Kong is forever my hometown, and there's something you can just sink back into.
0: Yeah, whereas know? there is nothing for me to sink back into yeah, in India, because it is all foreign to me.
1: In Hong Kong, there's a term for people like me who've lived abroad. Yeah there's several terms but one of them is someone who's been soaked in salt water you know like the ocean Mm -hmm. like or could be a dragon that has crossed a river like there there are various terms and I think the reason I feel othered is that obviously in terms of how I behave clothes I wear the way I do my makeup um interestingly my hair texture has changed Mm -hmm um must be the water but I think a lot of these things people might not even be able to put their finger on it but it's a gut feeling thing that you're not really local
0: that's Um, the thing it's it doesn't matter what I it it doesn't matter if I don't say anything
1: yeah they just
0: know they just know by looking at me and they know as well that like I'm British it's not that like I'm American or I'm you know yeah because if we had
1: if we were American Asians we would look different no exactly yeah and so sometimes when I go to Hong Kong um like in the summer when I traveled there when I was going through immigration customs doing PCR tests and everything every station people tried to speak to me in English and I mean good that they can because we have a lot of um Mm. English speaking tourists but when I say in Cantonese I can Cantonese is fine they're always so happy <laughs> you know yes. they're always so like relieved and this is something I've noticed ever since I've you know started studying abroad that when I go back people assume I don't speak Chinese so it's always a you know happy bonus for everyone when I do um and certainly in the way I dress um yes. fashion is very very different and um yeah I mean other not in a bad way I think I just mm. feel like definitely I'm not one of them. Um, yes. Sometimes that has advantages. So like people think you're, you know, mm. must be an intellectual if you studied abroad or something. Um, but I would say quite fortunately, also because we live in London, um, I've never felt othered by people, you know, immediately around me.
0: Not immediately around me, no. But I think also... It depends on, I guess, the pride you take in your own culture. And I think both mm. of us like and celebrate our own cultural differences. We mm. don't try and necessarily mask them overly.
1: I do want to ask you something though, given that in this conversation you are the actual native British person. Yeah. Can you tell between the different types of Asian people? Like sorry. Your like, kind or my kind. My kind of Asian people.
0: Uh more so with the countries i visited yes and more so because you know being around you for example Mm. i've I've learned some things i think i could always identify hong kong chinese ironically because that's a lot Mm -hmm. of what i knew and i like had been around um and i could always identify thai yeah um japanese i felt was slightly different and i have a a good friend who's south korean Mm. um but do you know how within china itself like i've only been to certain places within china you can probably identify maybe north, south, or yeah. you know, if I can't to that extent. I also am very poor with Vietnamese, mm. uh, differentiate that's something it that completely passes me by. So it's it, it's hit and miss, and it, it's very much based on what I've known from the places I travel to. Because when you spend time there, then you understand a little bit more about, yeah,
1: some of those interesting I think- like you say,
0: dress and hair and makeup
1: love so women, women in
0: particular
1: exactly and and I think that's the thing with you know because India is such a vast country with so many cultures and I've never been to India I don't think I can point it out I think I can notice the specific characteristics that certain like I would have seen maybe five Indian people who share certain physical attributes so I can tell that there are different you know quite different i guess tribes of people like um but for example african countries again i've never been so unless it's an accent thing i don't think i can tell yeah that's
0: that's an interesting one um Mm. question did you know that i was indian yeah like when we first met you just knew yeah Yeah, yes i i instinctively knew you were from hong kong because also your name Yeah, but what I mean is you didn't think, oh, like, she could be, in so but, like, anywhere in the Indian subcontinent, like, I could have been Sri Lankan, I could have been Pakistani, I could have been Indian. No,
1: Sri Lankans have a different skin tone. So that's what I'm saying, that you did no differentiation. Yeah, but with Europeans, I think some of them. Like, I think if you're talking continental Europe versus Eastern Europe, I think the difference is quite big. But the other day someone asked me, if I could differentiate between a Dutch person or a German person. And actually, that's... Not
0: until, not until they spoke.
1: Yeah. Because when you then go to, obviously, like, Scandinavians have a look, yeah. and they are just all gorgeous and gods but, and goddesses.
0: But, you know, I, I go to Scandinavia if I'm not right, but between, say, the Danish and the Swedes, I struggle. Yeah. I don't. I don't know until somebody...
1: Speaks. Mm. Yeah, and I guess the last big question I'd like us to talk about is given that it is multicultural, do you think multiculturalism works?
0: Mm.
1: Because, you know, here we've got, I think UK encapsulates so many actual traditions. So whenever it's like Diwali, holy like people actually celebrate my my neck of the woods fireworks constantly from (laughs) Diwali to Guy Fawkes yeah literally every single night and then you've got the Notting Hill Carnival yeah so you've got pretty strong representations I think and Chinatown is it's (laughs) madness at Chinese New Year
0: um I think you asked does it work And it goes back Mm. to what I said right at the beginning of part one of of this episode, was this country and its tolerance and ability for people to celebrate and embrace Mm. aspects of their culture, provided that they are in keeping with, you know, the morals and the British way of life. Mm -hmm. I think it does work um, because ultimately, and it comes back to this thing about humanity, Right. I believe wherever people are from in the world, whatever their belief systems are, whatever their cultures are, there are just core principles that we all abide by. And it's not, mm-hmm. it's its more difficult to find difference than it is find commonality. And so mm-hmm. that's why I think it does work. Um, and I, I've seen it work very, very well here. Um, I think also we're biased. You know, I, I've lived my whole life in the UK Um, Mm. and this is the model I know, and I've seen work.
1: Yeah, I think I I read that, you know, basically in the 60s, 70s, this was a pretty proactive project, right, that the UK government took upon. Um, Because like you said, you know, about the similarities and differences, it's really about both um, identifying and recognizing the similarities, but also actually being okay with the differences. Yes. Because if you only focus on the former, then you're othering, right? Other people. And yeah, I mean, I would say, of course, there's racism. There's racism of in course. every country, every corner of the world. Um, I think Brexit was painfully revealing. Uh, number one of, you know, those um, ideas and thoughts, but also number two with the power of media, to be honest, <laughs> in any political campaign. Um But yeah, I think it's great. I think people, if you want a whistle-stop tour of various cultures and you only have a short amount of time, London is the place to be. And I'd say
0: it evolves. You know, the experience of of my parents in this country Mm. is very different to their parents and is very different to my experience. Um, Mm. And I think it's a constant evolution. Yeah. You're right that it takes a concerted amount of effort at a national level to bring people to the centre and not leave them on the periphery. So I think that has been a really interesting and like very wide ranging conversation Mm -hmm. on immigration. Um, As I said, to go back and check out part one if you haven't already. And we'd really like to hear from any of our listeners that either are immigrants, descendants of immigrants, or have experiences of migration and moving uh, to different countries. So leave your details in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. of course, please share and subscribe to uh, our channel.
1: Don't forget to rate and review as well if your podcast platform has that option. And we'll see you next week again with a different topic.
0: Subscribe, rate, and review on your favourite podcast platform and follow us on Instagram at Culturally Speaking Podcast. You can also check out our website, culturallyspeaking.co.uk, for a transcript of this episode. Share your stories or your show ideas with us by sending us an email at theculturallyspeaking at gmail.com.